David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I am Elliot Harris, and today David and I have the pleasure of spending the entire hour with Roman Gabriel, a standout quarterback at North Carolina State before he went to the NFL and played with the Los Angeles Rams from 1962 to 72, and then the Philadelphia Eagles from 73 to 77. Here's our interview with Roman Gabriel. Well, David, I'm fine, and I appreciate the fact that somebody cares when you're 74 years old. They want to talk to somebody like me. I remember when you were playing, so that David's a lot younger. He doesn't remember. He doesn't remember any of that. He only knows what he's seen on on film and things like that. I remember watching on television. Oh, thank you. You grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's correct, the home of Sonny Jurgensen and Michael Jordan and Kenny Gaddison and Trot Nixon and a whole bunch of folks. Don't leave out Meadowlark Lemon. Oh, yeah, Meadowlark, I forgot <laughs> it. I wish you, I'm glad you remind me because Meadowlark and I and Sonny went in the uh, Wilmington Hall of Fame at the same time. Okay. Was there any temptation for you to go out of state to college? Well, you know, I was fortunate. I had, because uh, I was not only a football player, I played all three of those big sports. And uh, one of the offers I had was Notre Dame, but it was a little too far for me to thumb to get there and get back home. So how did you turn down the priests and uh, nuns at Notre Dame? It had to be hard. Well, it was, except it was too far to go trying to thumb back and forth. And uh, North Carolina State was one of the few schools that allowed me to play all three sports for a couple of years until I wanted to make my mind up. Which one were you best at, or which one did you like the most? Well, actually, as I started out, baseball was my number one sport. And now if you talk to my friends who are still alive, some of them, they'll say basketball was. But I got my opportunity to to turn pro. When you're at, who was your coach? Who was your coach at North Carolina for football? Oh, uh, Coach Earl Edwards. Uh, the one thing about that, that impressed me about him too is that at the time he was graduating a little over ninety percent of the kids who went to school there, and I was the only person in my family to ever get a college scholarship. So, and then it was only one hundred twenty miles to thumb back and forth. So I took that chance. And in those days, you could hitchhike, whereas nowadays, I think uh, the highway patrol picks you up and, uh, and gives you a student lecture. Yeah, you're right. And nowadays, it's too expensive, especially with the kind of money we made. You couldn't afford to drive back and forth. They didn't pay like the big schools in North Carolina State, like the USC's or Washington's. Well, probably the number one school was Carolina, the Tar Heels, we were looked on as like the uh, junior varsity compared to Carolina. 
And then, of course, you had Duke, who was uh, a little bit different school at that time. Did you know going in to North Carolina State that uh, you'd be given the opportunity to throw a lot? You know, I'm glad you asked that because, just, you know, it's like Sonny Jurgensen when he was at Duke. Uh, Sonny was five years before me. Sonny averaged throwing the ball nine times a game. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and when I got to State, we were in the single wing and bounce line and threw the ball 12 times a game, and most of that was on third down. Was there any temptation to move you to a different position in college? Actually, I played uh, goal line linebacker on defense because in high school I returned punts and kicked calls and played linebacker and quarterback. I ended up playing, uh, of course, quarterback and starting as a, a cornerback, if you can imagine that, but uh, linebacker on short yards goal line. You don't see many 6'5 cornerbacks. <laughs> Actually, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I covered him like a blanket. I never would let him get by me. <laughs> and I'm sure when you came up on those running backs who were probably about 5'9", uh, 5'10", five, five, weighed about 165 pounds, you, you know, had the, the size advantage here. Actually, when I left uh, New Hanover High School in Wilmington, I was 6'3", 190. And by sophomore year, because I, finally I learned... I found out how to lift weights, and I went from 190 to 235 eating moon pies and drinking Royal Crown Colas. They didn't have steroids in our day. Uh, I was, that, that was considered performance-enhancing stuff back then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> John Hadle mentioned the other day, one of your contemporaries, that what a great quarterback you were, and you guys had some great matchups back then. Who said that? John Hadle. Oh, yeah, John and I were good buddies. You're two guys who should be in the Hall of Fame, which I don't get what the NFL is doing. If they could put Bob Greasy and Bradshaw in, you guys are better than them at that time. You know, actually, it's the guys that are in certainly deserves it. And, but there are a lot of guys. And John Hadle being one, John Brody, the great 49er quarterback, right. uh, Dan Pastorini. I mean, you can go on and on. There are a bunch of guys that... So we have an outstanding club that aren't in as are in. Yeah, Adel, Adel, people forget, you know, another guy they forget, of course, this guy's in the hall. They talk about how great Jerry Rice was, and, and granted he was, but Lance Allworth, who's in the Hall of Fame, was every bit as good as Jerry Rice. People forget about how good he was. He was Adel's number one target in San Diego. I talked to Lance the other day, and he said that, the only person who could stop him was the Cowboys when he went there because uh, Bob Hayes wanted all the spotlight, and he told Bob, he goes, Bob, just run out there, and I'll catch one over the middle. And Bob goes, no, I'm not blocking. It's my team. Can you imagine having both of those guys on your team to throw to? Yeah. Because Lance was a 9-500 guy, and, of course, Bob was, what, a 9-3 guy? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and Lance could probably jump out of the stadium. Well, see, I was, uh, John and I were the quarterbacks on the All-Star team. You remember when they used to up in your area, they had the old Chicago All-Star game? Right, when Otto, Otto Graham was the coach. Yeah, John and I were the quarterbacks on that team that played the Green Bay Packers, and Lance was our top receiver. What was Otto Graham like as a coach? 
Otto was a good guy, but, you know, Otto had a knack to be able to throw the ball very smoothly and easy. And I remember when I got up there, he tried to change me a little bit. And I wasn't used to it at that time because I was starting to throw everything on the line. Otto tried to get me to put more air on the ball. I had, when I first went to the Rams camp, I had a little problem because I couldn't do that at that time. But Otto was very smart, and, and I enjoyed playing. He was a heck of a coach, too. Now, coming out of college, you were the number two overall pick in the NFL and the number one pick in the American Football League. Oh, yeah, Oakland Raiders. And you almost signed at that time, who, who had a substantially larger offer in terms of money. How, how did well, that all play actually, out? Well, see, the, the Raiders offered me 12500 and a $5,000 signing bonus. And then uh, Elroy Hirsch, who was the GM of the Rams at the time, he came to Raleigh and we sat down and he offered me 15000 and a $5,000 bonus. And my head coach was uh, handling all this because to me, I would have signed for anything because I never saw that kind of money. And my coach said, well, if you go with the Rams and they're established and the other league's not established, you know one thing, you're going to be around for a while and you're going to make just a little bit more money. And here's a story that people, and you might know this one, David, but while we were in the old Sir Walter Raleigh Hotel in Raleigh negotiating, Elroy Hirsch gets a call, and he says, let me take this. He goes to his bedroom, and uh, lo and behold, it was the Dallas Texans and calling because the Oakland Raiders were finding out that I wasn't going to sign with them, so they were going to get the Texans my rights to try to get me to go there. And after I'd already done the deal with the Rams, and uh, it came out later on that, they had offered a hundred thousand dollars, but I wasn't never told that by Hillary Hirsch and the Rams. Yeah. <laughs> they offered. They were going to pay. They were going to pay you a hundred thousand. They were paying a hundred thousand to the Raiders yeah. to trade for you. Uh, the, the Texans were going to make a deal with with the Raiders, and then the Texans were going to pay me a hundred thousand to go there. Yeah. That would have been a real easy decision. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, of course, the uh, the Texans owner was Lamar Hunt, and to him, $100,000 wasn't all that much money. Oh, heck no. <laughs> and they eventually moved to Kansas City. But uh, That's right. So and then in 1966, or 65, between 65 and 66 season, Remember when Al Davis was commissioner of the uh, the All American Football League? Sure. And he was signing. I think he signed Ditka. He said signed all kind of guys out of the NFL trying to force the merger. And at that time, I was making. Let's see, that was '65. I was making uh, twenty thousand, and I got an offer for three years, a three year contract from the Raiders for a hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm not real good at math, but that sounds like a, a a tough offer to pass up. Well, it was, but, you know, being from the South, there's a little humility involved. And uh, George Allen was made the Rams coach at that time, and he came to my house, and that's the first time I'd ever had any kind of tech, even with the coaches that we had at that time, because they didn't give a heck about you. So he made an effort to come to my house, and he says, look, I remember in Chicago, you got to play in the second half when we were beating the Rams really bad, and you had a pretty good second half. 
So I never forgot that. And I think you have the talent. And I will guarantee you one thing. If you stick around, I will give you an opportunity. If you can win the job, then it'll be your job. Plus, you have to play your option out. And I don't think that you want to have these people in Los Angeles feel that you're not good enough to play. And I started thinking about that because, I don't know, being from the South, there's zero humility involved. And I trusted George, and he said, you got to give the whole plus they gave me a $100,000 bonus check that I carried around my billfold. He said, you got to send that back. And I, and I did send it back, and I ended up, and George was true his word, I ended up starting and playing for the Rams. But later on, I found out I could have kept that 100 because I think Brody did, and I'm not sure if Mike did. Mike did, I'm sure, didn't give the money back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I never regretted it because I did have an opportunity to play play for good guys, good bunch of guys. The only thing I regret now is that 14 of the 22 guys that I started with George Allen, 14 of our 22 starters are dead. Wow. Now, your first season with the Rams – not nineteen sixty two. That's right. One twelve and one. The, the worst year in the Los Angeles Rams history. And I started the last four games as a rookie. I, I only played the last four games of the year, and the one, the one tie and one, one tie we had was my my first start against the Vikings. We tied the Vikings. Yeah, 24-24. I mean, you went through a couple coaches that year. You started with Hall of Famer Bob Waterfield, and then you went to, what, Hartland Suave? Yeah, he was the worst coach I think I ever played for outside of Tommy Prothrow. What was wrong with him, or he didn't understand the game? <laughs> uh, Tommy, you talking about Tommy Prothrow? Either one of them. How could they? Don't well, they just... Harlan was a heck of a player with the New York Giants, but Harlan got called up and trying to be a Hollywood guy. Yeah. And then at that time, every quarterback they would continue to bring in was because uh, Bob Waterfield, of course he's no longer with us, but anybody that Bob Waterfield recommended is who they brought in. So my first five years of Rams, I think we had 15 different quarterbacks. Wow. Well, pro so when you bring it up from, 60, from 62 to 65, actually from 62 to 66, I started 22 games, I think it was, and or 23 games, and, and we were 11-11-1. And, and the rest of the starters only won three games or four games. <laughs> and, and management could, and the coaching staff couldn't figure out anything? Well, you see, you had, it was like musical chairs. Every year they bring in a guy who was going to be the savior. First it was uh, Terry Baker, who was a heck of an athlete. And if, Ice if we had all yeah, if we had offenses like they have now, Terry Baker would have been great, but he, as a dropback guy, he just wasn't that good of a dropback guy, but he was a tremendous talent. And then they brought in Bill Munchen, who had a great arm, and Bill was, Bill and I became friends. He was, he, Bill was very good. And then they brought in Billy Guy Anderson Tulsa, who was a leading passer in college football his senior year. So those guys were the guys that they brought in. And you had Zeke Burkowski, too. Yeah, Zeke was there my first year. And uh, I give Zeke a lot of credit because he sort of took me under his wing. And I felt for Zeke because 
those first couple of years, we didn't have an offensive line. We had a cowboy line. It was like, look out, Zeke Roping. <laughs> but Zeke was, was a heck of a quarterback, which we found out when he went to Green Bay with the chances he got to play there. He just had no chance in L.A. But how do you not win with that defense? I mean, you had the fearsome force and you had Lamar Lundy, Deacon Jones, Merlin Olsen. I mean, it should have been, and uh, Rosie Gert should have been automatic. Well, sometimes defenses don't always win. You still have to score points. And when you have a, you don't have a very good offensive line, you know, Zeke never had a chance. And see, when George, George came in, of course, George was noted for his great defenses. And the kind of offense that we ran, it was don't give up the ball, keep the defense off the field. And even though we did that one year, we, we led the league in scoring. As good as our defense was with those fierce and foursome guys, and they're one of the best, along with the Purple People Eaters, the uh, Dallas Doomsday, and, of course, the Bears under Mike Ditka and, uh, and Ryan were, were outstanding. If, if we hadn't kept them off the field as much as we did, who knows whether they'd be like see, People tend to forget a lot of times defenses are as good as they are because offenses keep them off the field. You know, you look at uh, how good Peyton Manning is, but because he scores so many points, he scores so quick, the defense never has a chance to rest. So there's two-way street on that. Right. The, the Actually, franchise... I, the, the, probably the fun year I had was my first year in Philly. It was the only time in my career that I really got to throw the ball because we always got behind and we'd come back fighting. We threw the ball. And I threw the ball more in that one year, I think, than I had ever in the NFL. Well, you led the league in passing yards. And yep, that, touchdown passes. Yeah. And, again, it was a horrible season for the team. But, but a yeah, we had 5-8-1. We, yeah. we must have lost. I think we lost three or four of those games by less than a touchdown, too. I remember we lost to Buffalo by a missed field goal. Another one of your coaches on the uh, Rams was uh, Dick Vermeil. Did you realize what a good coach he was when he came? Uh, Dick was special teams coach for the Rams. Coach George was the first guy to have a, a special teams coach. Uh, Dick was a very enthusiastic guy and uh, quick learner, quick study. Uh, we spent a lot of time flying back and forth after road games talking about quarterbacking and, and the game. And then when uh, I got let go from the Rams and went to the Eagles, Dick became, I think, was the offensive coordinator for the Rams. You mentioned that your coach was basically trying to be, when you first started Hollywood, what it was it with you guys with the Rams? It seemed like everyone wanted to be in the movies or TV. Deacon, Merlin, Rosie, you had, you dabbled in it. You had uh, Jack Youngblood. Well, you got to look at this way, David. When you're making fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year for six months of football, and they offer you thirty-two thousand to make a movie, like I did with John Wayne, and you only spend three months, <laughs> hey, you go to take it. Well, I made more money making that movie than I did playing football that year. I was, I was going to say, you don't need to be an academic All-American to, to know that, that that's a good way, to, good way to supplement your income. You just have to go to class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was John Wayne like to work with? 
He was exactly what a great American. I actually think John Wayne thought he was a real cowboy. <laughs> uh, he was interesting. The first time I met him, uh, he says to me, well, you know, you were a pretty good football player. You made MVP. And he said, but you got to know one thing about me. I'm probably one of the great, great movie stars. And I already knew that because anybody that was raised when we were, you knew about John Wayne. He says, now, since you're playing my adopted son in this movie, I want you to know something. There's only three ways. It's your way, which will be wrong. It's my way, which will be right. And there's nobody else's way. So since you're my adopted son in this movie, I suggest you play it my way. I said, I have no problem with that, Mr. Wayne. He says, now, when you get to know me, call me Duke. <laughs> yeah, you also were on Gilligan's Island, which I assume is a little bit different than being in The Undefeated with John Wayne. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a $1,500 gig. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy in there that uh, was a head native, uh, Chief Eddie Little Sky. And it, uh, since that time when I see a lot of these old cow, he's in all these old cowboy movies. And and they told me I was going to have to speak native. And I, so I asked him, I, I said, hey, lady, how do you speak native? He said, just make something up. I said, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> it was fun, though, because, you know, those people, and as you know, Gilligan's Island is still on all the time. Oh, exactly. And but I got to meet every one of those people on that set were just unbelievably nice. But I don't get, they had you play in, in Indian, but you're Filipino. <laughs> I know, but nobody knew but me. <laughs> A funny story, I used to, because they shot that at Burbank, on the, on the lot at Burbank. People used to think this was out in the ocean in, the, in an island. They had a, a fake island on Burbank Studio. So yeah. afterwards, I get my car and drive home, and I drove. I, I lived up in the Granada Hills, which was like 30 miles from Burbank. And I still have my makeup on and the wig, and, and people would be driving by and they go, oh, my God, they... They let this guy out of jail. Look at him. <laughs> yeah, I heard that island was right off. You could see it off the expressway. Oh, you could. I know. Another show was laughing, which is before David's time. But I remember it quite well. What, what yeah. was that? What was that experience like? Oh, that was a crack up. Because first, uh, I'm trying. I think they had was one where the uh, the floor fell through. Okay. And they were doing a, a spoof on on me, and the floor throw fell through, and I fall down this hole. It was it was a crack up. I think the funniest thing I ever did though was uh, I did Skadoo with Jackie Gleason and Frank Gorshin and a whole bunch of other people. But they they made this movie in sections because it's the world's worst movie. And the scene that I have, I was a a guard in a jail with the Gorshin and. Gleason in the same cell. It was only like a, probably a two minutes part I had, but it lasted 30 minutes to take because Gorshin and Gilligan or um, Gleason would never stop cracking jokes. You had some big guys in that movie. You had Carol Gotti and women. You had, like you said, uh, Gorshin. You had Jackie Gleason. You had Groucho Marx, Mickey Rooney, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, Peter Lawford. It was kind of like um, it's a mad, mad world. It was like an all-star. The only two I saw was Gleason and Gorshin because I think every everything they did was 
did, they did with these different groups and they stuck the movie together. A terrible movie. You gotta admit it was a terrible movie. I'll have to watch it. <laughs> I know. I guess I waited because I'd never seen it. And about oh, uh, seven years ago, I'm up watching late night TV and it was on. I said, oh, God. <laughs> I was in that thing. <laughs> Getting back to football. Did the, did the Rams. They won? You remember like football? Football? Football. football. Yeah. Did, did the Rams change when Carol Rosenblum became the owner when he cha- traded uh, the Colts for the Rams? Well, not necessarily. Where we changed was, uh, well, of course, I, no, I wasn't there when I got let go when he his first year there. Where we changed was when uh, uh, George left and went to Washington, and we got Coach Prothro, and the first thing he did when he got us to a meeting, he says, I don't believe guys over 30 can play football. And I started looking around and said, well, that means myself, Merlin Olson, my roommate, Deacon Jones. Right. Uh, about half the team will just get up and walk out. <laughs> yeah, because you and Merlin were both drafted in the first round in 62. Yeah, and from that day, we were roommates in camp and also on the road for 11 years. Oh, that's another first. The Rams have never had a quarterback that's played for 11 years. And they still haven't. So, yeah. so Merlin couldn't get you on Grizzly Adams or something? Actually, Merlin was responsible for getting me on uh, undefeated because he, he knew the director and the, uh, oh, what the heck, the, the, the guy who wrote the movie. The director. out. I'm trying to think who that was. I'll have to look that up. How did you how did you avoid the Brady Bunch? Or that was uh, Deacon Jones' deal. <laughs> well, Deacon and I did Wonder Woman together. What was Linda Carter like? Oh Lord, I'm telling you, if I hadn't been married that time, I thought we had another divorce. <laughs> <laughs> she's I, she still looks good for her age. I'm telling you, I saw her the other night on the rerun of Two and a Half Men. Yes. Yeah, she was gorgeous. Yeah. Who was the leader of the defense? Was it Deacon or was it Merlin? I would say we had to – actually, the the real leader of that defense was Maxie Bond. And the next guy would have been uh, one of the – another guy who should be in the hall. Uh, a little free safety, Eddie Metter. Okay. And you had Jack Pardee, another great coach. Yeah, see, you had – see, Maxie was the number one signal caller – and if Maxie wasn't there, then Jack was. Jack was. We had two outstanding. They're very smart guys. Because as you're probably well aware, and Georgia's defense, you didn't have to wait to have time to adjust, because those two linebackers could get the call from George and and, and adjust it on the move the moment of the ball. Here, the director of the uh, undefeated was Andrew McLaughlin. Yeah, Andrew McLaughlin. And Andy Finnerty was the uh, yeah Andy Finnerty was the guy, uh, the producer. Him and Robert Jackson, Merlin knew all three of them. So he put in a good word for you. Yeah, Merlin, because uh, I think it was after uh, during Christmas holidays and we played a game, and uh, Merlin said that uh, Andy Finnerty was having a gathering, uh, like a holiday deal at his house, and. And all these people from the undefeated that was going to be shot 
we're going to be there and uh, and ask Merlin to ask if I'd like to come. And it wasn't Merlin, I probably never would have showed up. So I showed up and I met these people and said, well, we'd like for you to take a test uh, with the gal, uh, Melissa Newman, who played the little young gal in the movie. Right, Charlotte Langdon. Yeah. So I had to, that next week I went down and did a uh, an audition and well, I was pretty good with women, so I knew I had a good shot. <laughs> you had another beautiful woman you worked with in that movie, Lee Merriweather. Oh, boy, what a special lady she was. Miss America. Yeah. Very nice. And, Rock- and the other gal, Melissa McCargo, uh, uh, Marion Mary McCargo, I think this was that was her first movie. She was married to uh, the guy that owned Bell Telephone or something like that. Oh, Richard Moses. Or, yeah, right. or Alonzo Bell. I'm uh, sorry? Alonzo Bell. Or Alfonso Bell. Yeah, that's who she was married to. And besides John Wayne, we can't forget Rock, forget Rock Hudson. That probably was the big part of the movie. Uh, you remember that part of the movie where at night it was uh, uh, he and Hudson were trading off drinks and talking? Right. Everybody stuck around just to see that because uh, John Wayne can be an intimidator, and and you knew he was going to try to intimidate Rock Hudson. It was the first time they ever worked together. And give Hudson a lot of credit. He hung in there, and that might have been one of the best parts of the whole movie with Bruce Cabot handing him the, burnt, the, the booze, and it was well worthwhile. Was it real liquor, or was it just water? <laughs> Tea, iced tea. Iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, afterwards, afterwards, the Duke with his, his, it's when you watch his movies, he has almost the same bunch in. So after shooting, sometimes they'd get together and drink some tequila. Duke <laughs> liked tequila. <laughs> Tough on the. Oh, you know who else was in that movie? You remember the guy? You remember High Chaparral? Yeah. Don Collier, he was one of the Southern group of the Duke. Okay. He was a, he was a big star at High Chaparral. Of course, you had the the great Hal Needham was a stunt director. Oh yeah. Sounds like a once in a lifetime experience. Well, did, you did know, you... the little Filipino Irish kid come to the big city <laughs> and never <laughs> realized all the things he got a chance to do. After this brief break, we will be back with part two of our interview with Roman Gabriel. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. 